welcome everyone. So uh, yesterday, Pastor Ken's team won a big football game. <clears throat> and usually when they're playing, uh, Pastor Ken will send me a note, you know, send me a text or something, you know. And yesterday he didn't send me a single text, you know, during the game or anything. So I sent him this text. I said, well, we haven't heard anything out of Ken. I guess he is in such a state of ecstasy that he can hardly speak. <laughs> if he was ever going to speak in tongues, this would be the time. <laughs> well, we won't be talking about tongues today, <laughs> but we are talking about denominations and how did we get these denominations. So we're talking about church history, but we can't cover everything, obviously. We're particularly concerned about how different denominations form, and we can't cover all denominations since there's a thousand denomin Christian denominations or just huge numbers. Well, I say here, uh, we're here at you know, Community Bible Church, and what spurred my thinking on this is, you know, we've, we're here, but how did we get here, you know? We have the name Bible in our name, but there's other Bible churches around Woodhaven Bible Church, and so forth, Grace Bible Church. And there's all the kinds of churches, Methodist, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, so forth. Um, sometimes we speak of these as denominations, the Episcopal denomination, the, I say the Methodist denomination. Um, so we're aware that there are many different denominations. And so for the next three weeks, I want to talk about these things about the differences between these different denominations and how they came into being. How did we get these different denominations? In other words, how did we get from the church in the book of Acts to the churches that we see today all around us? I say the, the New Testament here makes no mention on page one of denominations these denominations are a relatively recent thing. We don't have any denominations, any really separate denominations for the first uh, thousand years of the church. And we don't really have many until after 1500. And then we start seeing numbers coming and coming. Um, one reason that we... Uh, don't see, uh, we didn't see so many denominations forming, is that um, in most countries, the church and the state were united. And the, the state believed that in order to have uh, civic harmony, you had to have religious conformity. That if you're gonna have a country, and it's gonna be a stable country, you're gonna have to have the same religion and I mentioned Louis XIV here, who, the king of France, who famously said, one king, one faith, one law. So they couldn't conceive of the plurality that we see today. Uh, they, didn't seem, they didn't see how that would work. And so that's why so many countries have state churches still. England has a state church. King Charles is the supreme governor of the Anglican church today. And uh, that's why they existed and so forth. Um, 
So when these denominational groups did emerge, they were persecuted at first because they didn't think they could handle different denominations. It's really the emergence of the United States with the idea of religious pluralism that you really get uh, the idea that we can have multiple denominations. I mentioned here in C that the New Testament speaks of churches in different cities, like the Church of Ephesus, Church of Philippi, Corinth, you know, we're familiar with that. But in the New Testament, as we, I'm sure you're familiar with, the word church has two different meanings. The first meaning of the church is just the body of Christ, sometimes called the universal church or the invisible church, which is composed of all genuine believers for the last 2,000 years. The church began, so all of us who have been saved, we're all members of the church, the universal church. The Greek word for universal is katholikos, katholikos. And from that word, we get the word Catholic, small c, Catholic. So because I'm a member of the universal church, I I can say that I, Bill Combs, am a member of the Catholic church. I'm a Catholic Christian, small c. Now, we don't normally do that today because it gets confusing about the Roman Catholic church and so forth. But that's what Catholic meant, was just universal in that sense. Um, and so uh, in our worship service, not today, but throughout you know, the last few months, Pastor Ken has been preaching through the book of Acts. And so we learned that the Catholic Church, the universal church, began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so the New Testament talks about Christ is the head of the church. That's the head of the universal church. Now, second, number two, the church is also used in the sense of an organized group of believers in a particular location. Romans 16, one, the church in Sincrea, and we talked about the church of Corinth. These are organized group of believers in a particular location. And on the day of Pentecost, we had the first local church, the church of Jerusalem, established. And so the book of Acts is the history of how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Rome, as we'll see shortly in the book of Acts, and the establishment of local churches throughout the Roman Empire in all these different places, Ephesus, Corinth, Philippi. I say here indeed that uh, what we call denominations developed after the book of Acts, obviously, And by the term denomination, I mean a group of local churches that share similar beliefs and practices and cooperate to develop and maintain shared enterprises. So there's various structures and types of denominations, but I'm just using a general statement here that these are local churches that share beliefs and practices, and they cooperate together for a purpose. Usually it's Missions and schools are the two main ones. So we want to see the, 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 day, the church from the day of Pentecost onward to see how these dom- denominations develop. Now, as I said, I'm covering 2,000 years of church history, and we can't uh, deal with everything, so I'm just, it's going to be focused as I can make it. I just want to remind you, E, here <clears throat> about the dates. Sometimes 
people get a little confused about this if you're not familiar with reading a lot of history, the difference between a year and a century. So if you look at that chart there, you can see that the year 150 is the second century. So the century is always one more than the year date. So the year 350 is the fourth century. And the year 1500 is the 16th century. And so we're, uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's one year ahead there. So I'll be talking about the 15th century and the 16th century, and uh, just to remind you about that. <clears throat> Let's start off here on page two with the age of the apostles. So we'll kind of look at the time here first when the apostles were still alive up to about the year 100. And we're talking about the Roman Empire. We have a figure one there. Um, and the Roman Empire, that's, it's within sort of the red lines there is the Roman Empire. And like uh, all civilizations, almost all civilizations throughout the history of the world, they had a state religion. That is, you had a ruler, a sovereign of some kind, a government of some kind, and there was a religion that went along with that. And everyone who was expected to adhere to it, the, the Roman Empire had that. Uh, during the time of the book of Acts, Christians were a small group, a small sect. And they did face sporadic persecution. We saw that, Acts 16, remember? Paul goes in there and the officials say, hey, these guys are advocating customs that we Romans are not allowed to take, you know, to, 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 to take hold of and to accept. So they're aware Christianity is a challenge somewhat to their Roman religion. And of course, Paul, so we see Paul gets, faces some persecution. According to tradition, uh, both Paul and Peter were martyred in uh, Rome in the time of Nero. Now, the book of Acts ends before that. The book of Acts, Acts 28, ends about AD 62. And then later, Paul, Paul is apparently released, and then he's captured again. He's taken prisoner again, and he's put to death in Rome. And so is Peter. Uh, under Nero's persecution, there was a fire in Rome. Nero blamed the Christians. And uh, so there's, there's the persecution there. Now, demographers, historians, try to estimate how many Christians there were in the ancient world. And I said here, by the year 100, it's estimated, who knows, but they say around 10,000 out of a population of maybe 50 million. Now, page three, you can see the extent of Christianity in that map. Just it's a rough estimate of where Christians were concentrated at in the Roman Empire by maybe the year 100. <clears throat> we come then to uh, Roman numeral three, the age of Catholic Christianity, 100 to 312. You'll see why that date 312 is important here in a moment for us. And during this time, Christians faced increasing persecution, yet their, their numbers multiplied. The church father Tertullian famously said, the, seed, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So as, as they killed off people, the church still grew. 
there are estimates of 40,000 by 150, 200,000 by 200, 2 million by 250, and 6 million by the end of this period are Christians. So it's rapidly growing. Now, as I said, there's no concept, I think I mentioned, there's no concept of religious freedom in the Roman Empire. Uh, you had to adhere to the state religion. Um, Christians had no legal protection to worship. The Roman religion, as you, I'm sure you're aware, was a polytheistic religion. Now, Rome was generally accepting of new religions that came along. They brought in uh, religions from Egypt and other places as long as they, as they were respectful of Roman gods. Uh, I want to mention the word pagan because I'm going to use it quite a bit. When we use the word pagan today, it's kind of come to mean somebody who is a Wicca person or <clears throat> witchcraft or something. But the Christians, early Christians, used pagan to describe the polytheism of Rome, that is, the, the Roman religion with all their gods and goddesses and all that. They were pagans. And uh, so that's what it was. It was paganism, the worship of many uh, uh, gods and goddesses. And uh, Christians didn't fit into that system. Uh, people who came into the empire from, as Rome conquered other places, they just came in and they accepted the Roman gods. They didn't reject them. They had their own gods. Very polytheistic, many gods. Now, the Christians were despised by most of the population for different reasons. I say, one, they were evangelistic. They were trying to convert all the pagans, you know, and that, that they didn't like that. The Christian way of life was a problem, too, because... Rome was a very immoral place, very moral society. Christians were, had a more moral lifestyle, which was an unspoken condemnation. Page four here, I think. Christians rejected the pagan gods. Rome, Rome couldn't understand Christianity because all the religions, the Roman religions, had temples and priests and idols and practices that everyone could see, but Christians, they didn't know what they were doing. They worshiped in, 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 you know, in private. They were more spiritual, internal. And the, the, the Romans thought they were atheists. They're atheists because they don't worship our gods. And uh, so they, would, uh, they, they didn't like the Christians. And they would blame Christians for disasters that came. You know, Every time a disaster you know, you comes, we look for a, you know, there's a big hurricane in Florida, a climate change, whatever, you know. So there's always some blame. We're trying to figure out what, what happened. And every time there was a disaster in Rome, a flood, a fire, oh, it's the Christians. Because they don't respect the gods, the gods are, you know, bringing disasters upon us. Now, I say, see here, during this period, the Christian leaders emphasized that there was only one what we might call Christian denomination. They spoke of the church as Catholic. They used that word a lot. Remember, Catholic means universal. And they were saying, we're only just one church. We're the universal, the Catholic church, even though there's many local churches. They also used the word Catholic because as Christianity grew, heresies started up. You can start a church, and then you'll get people who will go off in some heretical idea. 
depart from the truth. So there was Gnostics and Montanists, there were heretical groups, and so they talked about the Catholic Church, the true church, from these heretical groups. I say there were two major developments during this period of church. And unfortunately, they were departures from what the Bible teaches. And I'm emphasizing these two developments during this period because they're going to be with us for the rest of church history, and they're the cause of a lot of problems in church history. Uh, the first was the rise of what's called the Episcopal system of church government. The Episcopal system of church government. Um, and that meant a rejection of congregational church government. We'll explain what those are, but we have congregational church government here. The Episcopal church has Episcopal church government. But this arose during this period. Now, the heart of the Episcopal system of church government is the separation, the distinction between the office of elder and the office of bishop. Elder, bishop are different. Okay, let's explain that. So let's go back to the New Testament for a moment. The New Testament uses three terms to refer to the person we call pastor or pastors. So in our church, we talk about Pastor Ken or Pastor Larry or Pastor Rich or Pastor Bill. But the New Testament uses two other terms. A, notice, the most common term is elder or presbyter is another way to translate it. It's from the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros. And the Presbyterians take their name from that Greek word presbyteros. That means elder. We'll see why that's true later on. Um, but the most common term is elder. That's used 20 times. So Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. So you could call me Elder Bill. That's a perfectly acceptable. We have four elders in our church, four pastors. The other one is bishop or overseer. So you could say elder presbytery. You could say presbyter bill. You could say, you could say uh, elder bill if you want to. I don't like that elder bill. <laughs> forget, forget that elder stuff, okay? okay. Are we, the next term that's used, uh, besides the presbyteros, is episkopos, which is translated bishop or overseer, episkopos. And the word episcopal comes from that term, episkopos. It's translated like in the King James bishop, and in the NIV it's translated like overseer. Most translations they translate it overseer. So, uh, it's used both as a noun and a verb. Uh, the noun's used four times, the verb two times, like Philippians 1.1. 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So there's two offices in the local church. There's deacons and overseers. So I could be called overseer, Bill. I could be called Bishop Bill. I like that Bishop Bill. That's, that's pretty good. Okay. 
The other term is pastor or shepherd. That noun is used once, the verb is used a couple times. So Ephesians 4:11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. So there are three terms used to refer to the same office. I say two, these three terms are used interchangeably, which I was just doing when I said Elder Bill, Bishop Bill, Pastor Bill, I was using those terms interchangeably. And we see that from Scripture, Titus 1, 5, and 7. Paul is writing to Titus, and he says, The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might put in order what was left and appoint elders in every town. And then he says later, as I directed you, since an overseer manages God's household. So these elders are overseers. He equates those two. Acts 20, 17, 28, we'll see later, Paul is writing, he's he's on his way back to Jerusalem, and he stops to visit the church of Ephesus. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So elders are overseers, and be shepherds. They shepherd the flock of God. There's all three terms used together. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder. Be shepherds. The elders are the shepherd. That is, those under you watching over. That's the word episcopal, the verb, episcopal. So it's oversee them. Now Philippians 1, 1 shows clearly there's only two kinds of offices in the local church. Two kinds. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So there are deacons and there are overseers. But those overseers can be called elders and they can be called pastors. They just refer to different functions. The overseer oversees, the elder is a spiritually mature person, and a pastor, that's his work of shepherding the flock. 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 8. The qualifications for only two kinds of officers are given in the Bible. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to an officer desires a noble work. In this way, deacons are to be worthy. So Paul, when he's giving the qualifications for church officers, he lists two officers. He says, overseers and deacons. Philippians says there's two offices. There are two offices in the local church, official offices. I mean, you can have a Sunday school superintendent, but, but there are two official offices. There are deacons and there are pastors. And pastors can be called overseers and they can be called elders. So in our church, we have a plurality of elders. We have four elders. Now, number three on page five, this means that the New Testament pattern is congregational church government. And it means that there's autonomy for each local church. So here's a diagram of the kind of church government we see in the New Testament and the kind of church government that we practice here and many churches practice congregational church government. So the congregation is ultimately governing the church, ultimately. 
So the, the, the congregation chooses the pastors. They choose the deacons. The congregation can fire the deacons, and they can fire the pastor, and so forth. So the, deacon, the, the overseer, the, the congregation, it's the ultimate authority. You'll see the pastor, elder, overseer there. There's lines going both ways, because pastors have spiritual authority. So you might say, hey, the congregation's on top. I'm telling Ken what he's preaching next week. Good luck with that. <laughs> Good luck with that, you know. So, yeah, the pastors have authority, spiritual authority, but they don't have ultimate authority. Then there's the deacons, chosen by the congregation. Now, if we want to, we can join voluntarily with other churches. We don't lose our autonomy. No church outside can come in and say, hey, I'm removing your pastor. Or, hey, put this guy in as a deacon, you know. Or, hey, you know, give us $50,000. We're taking it, you know, from you. They can't do anything like that because we're an autonomous, congregationally governed church. But we can enter into association with other churches for missions, for education, for whatever we want to do. That's congregational church government. Now, everybody agrees to that, even those who don't practice this. This is what the New Testament teaches. But number four on page five, in the second century, especially the third, some churches began to make a distinction between the offices of bishop, overseer, and elder pastor. Now, we said they're all the same. We said a bishop, bishop overseer is the same as elder pastor, same function, they're the same office. They describe different functions, but they're the same person, persons. So what happened in the second, the third century, certain men were designated as bishops over a number of churches in a specific geographical area. That's the Episcopal form of church government. So what happened at first was, as churches grew, you had a, you had a pastor of a church who had a large church, and he became very influential, and people looked to him. And he started taking the title bishop and distinguishing himself from other smaller churches. And then he started giving advice and, and authority. He had authority over numbers of churches. So that's what you see. The bishop there is at the top. And he's over elders. Other, he's over elders or pastors. And the congregation is under that. So this is the Episcopal form of church government that we find in many church governments we'll see, like the Episcopal church, like the Methodist church. Uh, some Pentecostal churches are built on this because they came out of Methodism, are built on this model. And sometimes the, that, that bishop has huge authority, sometimes he has lesser authority, um, depending. Now, the Church of Rome is... A, is a form of this. The bishop at the top there is the bishop of Rome, the pope. And so uh, in this form, the congregation does not have free reign to, let, to choose their pastor or to dismiss their pastor in the Episcopal form. Now this can vary from church to church, but in a true Episcopal form, the, 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 the bishop is the one who ultimately decides. Now, why did this develop? Why did this Episcopal, page 6, system develop in the church, since it's not what the New Testament teaches? I say it's admitted universally 
even about people who practice the Episcopalians, that this was done for expediency. What some saw apparently as a solution to a number of problems. This, this, this arrangement of church government solved a lot of problems. First of all, they came to the conclusion that, you know, the Word of God is not authoritative, not, doesn't give us the authority we need. We need authority uh, passed down from the apostles, sort of. We want to reproduce apostolic authority. We want these bishops to be like apostles so that they have the kind of authority apostles did. If you'll notice, when we read those verses about Paul and, Paul and Barnabas went in Acts 14 and they appointed elders in the church. Now, nobody appoints elders in this church. They're elected. But why did the apostles appoint? Well, they're apostles for one reason. <laughs> And secondly, there are new churches. They're establishing these churches. There are new churches. You know, the church hasn't been in existence. So the apostles had to appoint in that case. And, you know, they thought, well, that's a great idea. Uh, we want to reproduce that kind of thing where we have apostles. So these bishops are like apostles. They have authority passed down. It was done also against the background of heretics, heretical beliefs. You need a strong leadership. With all these churches out here, you need someone to speak against the heretics, kind of a central leader or leaders. The church also faced persecution, and so you need somebody to be able to speak authoritatively to this persecution. Now, ultimately, this has direct, uh, disastrous effects. You've got the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, the supremacy of one bishop, the Bishop of Rome. So this is an unbiblical system as far as the New Testament is concerned. Uh, local churches lose some or all of their autonomy. Now the other thing that developed during this period that causes a lot of problems later on is the practice of baptism. Uh, I mentioned here on page six, number one, the New Testament clearly teaches that we only baptize people who are capable of making a credible profession. Somebody has to be old enough to make a credible profession of faith before they're baptized. But by the middle of the third century, about 250, many in the church, it took a long time for this to develop, but many in the church came to believe that the act of baptism itself could save you. It could regenerate you. You'd be born again by the act of baptism and you'd have forgiveness of sins. We call that baptismal regeneration. That's an error, but it developed. Now, one of the reasons it developed was because the church believed in original sin, what we call original sin, that we are come into this world guilty. We're coming into this world sinners. We have a sinful nature. And uh, so there's a problem with infants. What about infants? And they said, okay, if we baptize them, this will remove their original sin and they won't be condemned. Now, we don't baptize infants, but we don't believe infants are condemned. We have different theological reasons for thinking, no, infants aren't condemned or anything like that, but we don't, we don't need to baptize them to solve that problem. But they, that was one reason they did it, they said. So by the end of this period, I say here, F, there's only one denomination, the Catholic Church, Small c, the universal church, they call themselves the Catholic Church. Now page 7, 
Now, by the year 300, you remember, you've got about 6 million Christians estimated and a population maybe of 50 million or so. And the map there on figure five kind of, if you look at the colors, it sort of says there's, where there's more Christians or less Christians, they're spreading throughout the Roman Empire. So now we have the age of the Roman Empire, 312 to 590. During this period, Christianity replaced paganism as the official state religion of Rome. How did that develop? Well, from, one, from 50 to 250, the church was persecuted, but it was mainly local persecution. But then in 250, the Roman government decided to really persecute the church and eliminate the church. So Christianity was declared to be an illegal, illegal religion and you could be put to death for being a Christian. I mentioned number three, finally in 311, the Emperor Galerius conceded that this attempt to exterminate Christians was a failure. So they were, they were this was the, the worst time of persecution was right before in the early 300s. Christians were facing extreme persecution, but the emperor decided, hey, this ain't working, friends. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not winning this battle. And so he said, okay, I'm issuing this act, edict of toleration. He granted freedom of worship. He said, you can rebuild some of your churches. Uh, Christians started building some churches probably in the 250 range, a few churches, 250, something like that. Uh, but he died shortly thereafter. And then there was kind of a scramble for power. And I mentioned on number four here, in 312, Constantine defeated his rivals to become emperor. He, he had a battle in Rome, famous battle, where he defeated them. And he, he said that he was given a vision where he was told to put this Christian symbol on the shields of his soldiers. I got that symbol there, it's, make it out, but it, if you looked at it in English, it's kind of like an X, and then it looks like it's a P. <laughs> but those are the first two letters of the word Christos. That P is really an R in Greek, so it's like C-H-R. And that was an early symbol that Christians used this key row, the key row symbol. And he put that symbol on his shields and he won. He defeated his rivals uh, and in 313 he issued another edict making Christianity not only a legal, a legal religion but the favored religion. Now the emperor's a Christian, supposedly. Uh, supposedly, he, he didn't get baptized until he died, but page eight, in 380, the Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the empire. So now it's the religion. It replaces the polytheism. I say here, B, during this period, the church and state were merged together. Uh, the emperor exercised administrative control over the, head, over the church. So you've got the bishops and stuff, right? The bishops here. But the emperor ultimately exercises control over them. Uh, Constantine, for instance, called all the bishops together. There were apparently 1,800. 300 attended a council called the Council of Nicaea in 325. This was a council to deal with a heresy that had origin, that was in the church called Arianism, denying the deity of Christ, uh, saying he was just a created being and all this. So 
they had a council, they condemned that, the Council of Nicaea. And some churches, some formal churches, will recite the, the Nicene Creed, you know, in their worship services. Now, in 330, Constantine, I say, see, moved the capital to the eastern city of Byzantium, renaming it Constantinople. I don't know if you can see on that previous page back on figure five where Byzantium is. It's just south of the Black Sea there. You know, it's at the Bosphorus. It's between Turkey and Greece, that red dot, Byzantium. That was the chief city in the eastern, and he renamed it Constantinople after himself. And it became the capital of the empire, the capital of the entire Roman Empire, really. Call it Constantinople. Now, eventually, after Constantine, the empire was divided between two emperors, east and west. And that's what you see in figure six. You've got the green, you've got a western Roman Empire with an emperor over that, and the red, a east, I mean, the green is a western, and green is uh, the pink there, the orange. I don't know what to call those colors. I only know orange, red, yellow, blue, and purple. And, you know, and my wife, I tell my wife it's red or purple. She says, no, that's, that's teal. Well, I, what, what is that? You know, I just... So what that's like, I don't know what that is, like pink or, it's, you know, that's, what, that's all I know. I just know those basic colors, so forgive me. Forgive me for that. Uh, Germanic tribes, I mentioned here, D, had been threatening the Roman Empire for centuries. Uh, you see the map there on page, uh, on figure seven, on page nine. You'll jump ahead to page nine there. Uh, it's kind of showing where these barbarian tribes, these Germanic tribes were coming in to uh, attack Rome, attack Roman uh, lands and so forth. Uh, and in the fifth century, the 400s, they effectively brought, the, they, they sacked the city of Rome and they brought the Western Roman Empire to an end, really. Uh, the last emperor in the West was deposed by the Germanic general in 476. So you still got an emperor in the East and that continues for a thousand years. But the emperor in the West, he's, down, he's gone. This left a big power vacuum in the West, and who's going to fill that vacuum? The Bishop of Rome, that we call the Pope. The Bishop of Rome becomes very, very powerful. I mentioned E here. Uh, in time, five bishops became the leading authorities for Christianity. Bishops of Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, and Egypt, Constantinople, capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, and Rome, the capital of the Western. But only the Bishop of Rome was in the Western part of the empire. So he's out there by himself with all this power. I say the word Pope means father, and it was applied in the early church to any important respected leader. Gradually the term was restricted to the Bishop of Rome. Pope Leo I was the first bishop of Rome to claim authority over other churches, both east and west. So here's this bishop of Rome. There's an eastern empire, and he said, hey, I'm really over everything, man. Uh, so though we can say there's only one denomination, the Catholic Church, differences will soon come up, and there'll be a split in 1054, and we'll see the first split in the church, really. Now, Roman numeral five, we have the age of the Christian Middle Ages, 5, 9, 
590 to 1517. In 590, a man named Gregory I became the pope. He was very powerful, and, he, and his, his reforms, his changes, really made the, he really made the Catholic Church what it is today. He expanded the power of the, of the, bishop, of the bishop of Rome. He appointed other bishops. They couldn't be bishops without him giving the pallium, which is the scarf of office. So he had tremendous power over uh, Gaul, Spain, Britain, Africa, Italy. He rearranged the liturgy of the church, which became the groundwork for the mass today, the Roman mass. And over time, the church incorporated erroneous teachings that are not found in the New Testament, as you can imagine, in the Roman Catholic Church. In the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances, like we practice today, like we had the ordinance of the Lord's Supper today. They're symbols of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Though we are commanded to baptize and observe the Lord's Supper, they're not necessary in order to be saved. They're not necessary to be saved. But in the developing Roman Catholic Church, they will be necessary. Over time, the church erroneously defined the ordinance in terms of ritual and sacrifice, ideas and practices the pagans knew, adapted to Christianity. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were understood as sacraments that conveyed grace that was necessary for salvation. The Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist as they call it, from the Greek word to give thanks, was understood to be a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ's death. And the pastor is now a priest. He's called a priest because he's offering a sacrifice. He's a mediator. I say see here, in 1054, the Catholic Church split into the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church over the differences that had been growing for hundreds of years. Now, it, you could go into a long dissertation about all these differences between the East and the West, but the East was primarily Greek in speak and attitude. The West was Latin. So first of all, they had different languages. Greek in the East, Rome, Latin in the West. Prior to 1054, the Bishop of Rome served as the head of the Western Church, while the Bishop of Constantinople served as the head of the Eastern Church. A consensus eventually developed in the Western Church that the entire church should be ruled by a single ecclesiastical institution with a single head, and that's the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. The, bishops, the Bishop of Constantinople was not impressed with this idea. Yeah, hey, I, I, that's tough toenails, man. I don't care what, what you want, you know. But because they couldn't come to an agreement, they promptly excommunicated each other. And their churches went their separate ways. So for the first time, we can say, figure eight, the great schism, we've got two distinct denominations. We've got the Roman Catholic denomination and the Orthodox, uh, what we call the Eastern Orthodox. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. I say the Orthodox Church consists of seven today self-ruling uh, groups of churches, the National Churches of Russia, the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, Bulgaria, Albania, Romania, Serbia, Greece, and Cyprus. Now, there's a lot of discussion and contention about this. A lot of churches are, are what they call um, uh, autocephalous. That is, they're not really under one of these uh, national churches. That's true of the Orthodox churches in the United States. It's hard to tell. Some Church, ortho, some churches called Orthodox in the United States would, would say were, that they all came from these churches. 
So a lot of Russians came to the United States and established Orthodox churches. Greeks came and established Orthodox churches. But they seemed to operate sort of independently of the state church. Uh, a metropolitan, a patriarch, guides each of these churches. They, Orthodox, all Orthodox Christians esteem the patriarch of Constantinople, modern Istanbul, Turkey. But he has, he has little official authority beyond his own churches. I say here three, the Orthodox Church differs from the Roman Catholic Church in a number of practices and beliefs. Priests are allowed to marry before ordination but forbidden afterward. The church rejects the distinctive Roman Catholic doctrines, including the Pope as the sole vicar of Christ on earth, papal infallibility, the treasure of merits of the saints, indulgences, and purgatory, which we'll talk about. The church only baptizes by immersion. Well, they, <laughs> they know Greek, <laughs> and they know baptiz baptizo. They know baptizo means immerse, you know, so they, they figure that one out. The Orthodox continues today, but I'm not going to say more about them because uh, we want to talk about the Protestant Reformation and the churches descended from them. I say here, D, by the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had incorporated a slew of false doctrines and practices, including prayers directed to Mary, dead saints and angels, veneration of the cross, images and relics, canonization of dead people, celibacy of the priesthood, the rosary, the sale of indulgences to reduce time in purgatory, transubstantiation and confession to preach priest. By the late Middle Ages, the abuses in the church were mounting. You know, clergy were supported by the government, of course. They were frequently absent from their parishes. They weren't around. It was common to sell these offices like the bishop. So the church would, I want to be bishop of uh, Florence. Okay, 50,000 Florence bishop, of, you know. Uh, it was common practice for these Catholic clerics to have concubines. The rites of the Roman Catholic religion, including superstition, sacraments, pilgrimage, ceremonies, relics, and mariolatry. In other words, salvation by works had displaced salvation by grace, justification by faith, and the absolute authority of Scripture. So there's not hardly any gospel in the Roman Catholic Church as it develops here. Indulgences made a mockery of sin, guilt, and punishment. G. The concept of indulgence rested on the distinction between temporal and eternal, uh, temporal and eternal punishment. The Catholic Church taught that by means of absolution, a priest could grant forgiveness of sins and enable a person to avoid eternal punishment, but temporal punishment could only be avoided by human effort. The Pope possessed, professed to be able to grant relief from the part or all of the temporal punishment due for sins based on the merits of Christ, along with prayers and good works of Mary and the saints, a treasure of merit. By means of indulgence, a person could secure this relief from a temporal punishment for himself and those already in purgatory. So you see that chart there. You're born in sin, you're baptized, and now you're in a state of grace. If you die when you're baptized, you'll go immediately to heaven. But people commit sins, and those sins have to be dealt with. So you have to go to a priest, you have to have confession, and you have to do penance. So instead of repentance, the Catholic Church translates the word incorrectly, the Latin Vulgate, as penance. You have to do penance. Pray something, uh, do some work of mercy, uh, a lot of things you might do for penance. 
Now, all this is about temporal punishment. So you go to a priest, and he gives you absolution from eternal punishment. You won't go to hell. But you still got to pay for, you got this temporal. Temporal means in time. So there's punishment that's going to be meted out over time. And you got to pay for that. And so they send you to purgatory. So you, you don't go to hell, but there's that temporal punishment. And so therefore you've got to go to hell and suffer 10 years, a thousand years, a million years. We don't know how long it will take till you're purified from your sins. Now the Pope can get you out of there. The church can get you out because they can give you an indulgence. And it will give you a, you know, a 50-year indulgence. You'll, okay, 50 years. You're out, you don't, 50 years less in purgatory, you know. $10, 10, 10 years, you know, whatever. Now we'll see this is, this is a big thing that caused the Reformation the idea of purgatory indulgences. Last thing, and I'll let you go. By the early 16th century, the church had become morally corrupt and bankrupt. It had become a political organization with bureaucracy. It had its own monarch, the Pope, capital of Vatican, its own laws and canons, its own courts, its own armies, and all kinds of things. So as we end this, around 1500, right before the Reformation, we have two denominations, the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic is pretty corrupt at this time. They've lost the gospel, and that's going to be uh, brought back by the Reformation, and we'll see that next time. Thank you so much for listening fast, <laughs> and I've, I've been encouraged to say the men, uh, we need the men to stick around if you can and help pick up the chairs and bring out some tables because we've got the baptismal uh, celebration tonight. So we've got to have the tables out there. So all you strong men, uh, you all look strong to me. All you men, uh, <laughs> help us with that. Thank you so much.